Do you think this will be the reception Charles and Camilla get when they visit New Zealand as king and queen? Or will it sound more like this? They shouldn't be welcomed as leaders of the country, as representatives of the head of state. How are these two young white people now going to be here saying we are going to kowtow to them and we are going to bend and, and bow and kneel to them as, as if they are gods? Those days are done. Those, the monarchy is a relic. Those uncomfortable discussions are even bubbling away in Britain. People see Britain as fossilised in the past. The royal family is a strength, if you like, but it's also a a drag. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail, the pomp and ceremony is over for now. So what next for the monarchy? There's all the king's money to sort out for a start. They are fantastically rich. The queen was probably worth three or four billion. Royals critic Norman Baker will tell us more about that. And what about the place of Charles and Camilla in New Zealand? Well, Donna Fleming is the royal correspondent for the New Zealand Women's Weekly. The first visit will be quite extensive. I think he will try to get around and see as much of the country as he possibly can. How much they come back, I'm not sure. You have to remember that Charles is now 73, Camilla is 75. She doesn't like to travel. She hates flying. But I think he will, it will be pretty extensive and he will come here knowing that there's a possibility that we will be looking at moving to becoming a republic. And I think he will be quite accepting of that because he understands that that's generally the way things are going in a lot of places. Interesting that because within days of the Queen's death, the Prime Minister of Antigua and Barbuda announced that there would be a referendum on becoming a republic. This is not an act of hostility, but it is the final step to complete um, that circle of independence um, to ensure that we are truly a sovereign uh, nation. I mean, those Commonwealth countries in the Caribbean, they've really led the way on this. So what is also interesting is the reception that they have given for the royals. They are bringing no apologies. They are bringing no remorse. They are just coming to say, here I go because I am a gen- it's called gentle privilege. I can just walk up in your country because I own your country and I still own your country. So when William and Kate went in March, they were actually quite taken aback by the reception they got. There was not only just republicanism statements but people were actually quite angry they want an apology from the royal family they are angry about colonization Uh, they were speaking about years of enslavement and they were talking about slavery reparations and William had to deal with that and gave quite a heartfelt speech I strongly agree with my father who said in Barbados last year that the appalling atrocity of slavery forever stains our history. I want to express my profound sorrow. Slavery was abhorrent and it should never have happened. And said, you know, we're open to what you want. This is your country. And I'm sure Charles also feels the same way and that it's up to countries to decide what they want. And they don't really, they can't really do much about it. What's your sense about the kind of reception that they will get here in New Zealand in the future? I think they will get a good reception. It won't be the same as the Queen, 
because she was a one-off really and the monarchy will never be regarded in the same light again. I think there are people who've been on the fence for a while who've thought, oh, well, you know, the Queen's a good sort, we'll stay a monarchy, we're happy to stay a monarchy while she's on the throne, but that Charles chap, we're not too sure about him, maybe this is the catalyst for change. Personally, I think maybe within the next five years we will have a referendum to see whether we want to become a republic. I do believe that is where New Zealand will head in time. I believe it's likely to occur in my lifetime. But there's so many details to work out. So there might be a referendum in five years' time, but whether it actually is put in place within five, ten years' time remains to be seen because a lot will need to be worked out. Do you think when the king comes to New Zealand that he will even be open to discussing the past, the colonial legacy? I think he will possibly give a speech about it, which will be carefully written beforehand by his staff to make sure that they are covering all bases. You know, he might have discussions with whoever is Prime Minister at the time about that. I think he will address it. I think he knows that he has to. It's how he addresses it and how distant the royals keep themselves from the public. You know, is it just shaking hands and and small talk in, in the big crowds? It'd be interesting to see if... Even William was willing to sit down and, and, and talk about it properly in an interview or in an open discussion. I think William would in open discussion, which he can do because he's not the king. And also Charles is still of that generation where you didn't necessarily debate these things in public forums or even in interviews. I think William is possibly more open to it. They're a lot more savvy than people realise They have staff who keep them briefed every single day about what's being said. The senior working royals, they do know what's going on and they do judge the mood and they have staff who are very switched on and can advise them. In 1947, on her 21st birthday, she pledged in a broadcast from Cape Town to the Commonwealth to devote her life whether it be short or long, to the service of her peoples. We're talking about the fact that the British monarchy is the last imperial monarchy in Europe. Norman Baker is a former Liberal Democrat government minister. A few years ago, he wrote a scathing account of the royals' riches in a book called And What Do You Do? What the Royal Family Don't Want You to Know. Other monarchies have either been abolished, like the German Kaiser or the Austrian Emperor or the Russian Tsar, they've all gone at the end of the First World War, or they've migrated into modern monarchies, bicycling monarchies we call them, where the, where the cost of it is minimal, where the number of people who are doing royal duties is very small, and where the monarchy itself is seen as an adjunct to the democratic process. Uh, we're the opposite still. We're still in an imperial monarchy where we in Britain are technically subjects of the king. So we have to move, in my view, we have to move the monarchy from that imperial model, which is totally out of date with the 21st century, into something, if we're going to hit the monarchy, into a kind of European monarchy. The mindset needs to change. And the idea that we are subjects needs to change. In terms of specifics, 
you know, the, the royal family costs an absolute fortune. How much do um, they cost? If you look at the the Swedish and the, the, the Belgian royal families uh, and Spanish, they cost about five to ten million pounds a year. I think the most expensive one's a Dutch one, from memory, about thirty nine million pounds. Ours ours costs far more than that. The civil list, which was the old way of funding them up to twenty eleven, cost seven point nine million a year twenty eleven. Pounds. It was then changed pounds, yes. After pressure from Prince Charles, it was changed to the sovereign grant. The Queen and the royal family get their money from three main sources the sovereign grant, the privy purse, and personal income. The sovereign grant is a single payment given to the royals by the government every year. And the sovereign grant last year was 85 million. So a massive increase, tenfold, elevenfold increase, in a time when people have been tightening their belts in this country because of economic situation. Plus the fact you've got about £200 million for security on top of that. And then you've got all the tax dodges, the tax exemptions which apply. There's the, when the Queen leaves Charles her property, as she has done, no doubt, I'm not talking about Buckingham Palace and state only, I'm talking about her personal property. Her estate at Sandringham in Norfolk is her personal property and is valued at around £75 million. Balmoral Castle and Grounds would probably fetch another £40 million. When she leaves a personal property, there's no inheritance tax bit on that. She is the one person in the country exempt from inheritance tax. Why should she be exempt from inheritance tax? They are fantastically rich. The Queen was probably worth three or four billion. Now, where did that come from? She didn't win on the races, did she? She went down the new market, putting the money on the horse that came in. That came from two sources. It came from either handouts from the public purse over generations, in excess of what she needed, or it came from tax dodges, which no one else benefited from. So the royal family, the firm, as as you've called it, don't have to pay any kind of tax? Well, the Queen, between 1952 and 1992, the Queen paid no income tax. The only tax she paid was the local rates on Bar Moral and Sandy. That's all she paid. She was exempt from dividend tax on her shares and stocks and stuff like that. And the Daily Mail, which is not the most left-wing paper by any means, right-wing, paper, calculated, I think about 20 years ago, she'd made a killing of about £800 million just on that one exemption. So they paid the income tax voluntarily, but they used every trick in the book to minimise it. You've just actually described Charles in an article I've read as as the most progressive and caring of the family. Yes. What, what do you mean by that? He's the most liberal in many ways. I mean, he, he's a faulty character. Um, and I quite like Charles because Charles is, uh, is, a, is a caring individual. He had a, a rough childhood. He was a sensitive child. And he was brought up in this ghastly school, which his father put him into. So Charles says things which I agree with. He's right on climate change. He's right on alternative medicine, by and large. He's right, in my view, on what he says in architecture. But Charles should not, as Prince of Wales, he certainly shouldn't as king, be expressing his personal views on matters. You know, the fact he's in favour of pop hunting it's not a matter for him. He's already said, though, hasn't he, that he's going to pull away from the topics and charities that he's very yes. passionate about. He said that, but we don't know he'll do that. And, and he has a constitutional right as king to counsel, to warn and to advise the prime minister. That's legitimate. So he'll carry on, but just behind the scenes. Are you saying then that it, he he's progressive but in my view, he's the most progressive member of the royal family. William might be progressive. I don't, we don't know yet. However, there's a, there's a deep personal fault. There's an Achilles heel with Charles. He is progressive, but he doesn't apply his own logic to himself. 
That's the big problem with Charles. Uh, that's one problem with Charles. The second problem with Charles, he won't listen to advice unless it's advice he wants to hear. They're the two big problems Charles has got. So on the progressive side, he tells us about the damage of climate change. Absolutely. And he's way ahead of the curve on climate change. But he flies everywhere private jets. He takes helicopters from London to Cambridge when there's a good train service to, to lecture on climate change. He doesn't seem to see, you know, the, the beam in his own eye. I mean, it's, I don't understand why he does this, but he does it all the time. He just undermines his own message. So do you think that he will make any steps towards changing, you know, the special treatment that the royals get? Do you think that he'll make those sort of moves towards the way other royal families are, in, particularly in Europe? I think he'll make some superficial changes. You know, on, my, on the cover of my book, there are 44 members of the royal family in the balcony. I mean, who are these people? Why are we paying for them? Um, I don't even know who they all are. But Charles has said he wants to slim down the monarchy. So he will slim it down to about seven, probably. Probably himself, Princess Anne, Prince Edward and his wife, Sophie Wessex, William and Kate, and that's about it. So he'll get rid of the hangers-on. When I say get rid of them, they'll, they'll, they won't appear in public. We'll still be paying for them. We'll still be in free houses and stuff, but they won't, you won't see them anymore. Similarly, when it comes to coronation, it'll be much less lavish coronation than Queen Elizabeth II had when she came to the throne. So it'll look like you're saving money there. So he's going to make some superficial changes, but he won't actually do anything to change the income stream he's getting. What do you think about um, the less glowing press that's starting to come out now, really, about the king's finances? Is it reasonable to have that kind of discussion? I think it is reasonable. I think when the public is paying for anything, you need to have accountability. You need to know where the money is going. You know, Charles has had a bit of had a couple of shocks this year when there has been information released about one of his charities, the Prince's Foundation, and the fact that several people donated money to the foundation by basically giving him plastic bags full of large amounts of cash, millions and millions of dollars. And Charles just accepted it, handed it to an aide. The aide trotted off to the bank and deposited it. A cash for honours story that began almost a decade ago, featuring this Saudi billionaire accused of trying to buy his way into British society. And one of Prince Charles's closest aides, Michael Fawcett, said to be the facilitator. He left the palace last September when details of the arrangements emerged. There was an internal investigation, but no police investigation until now. And it was Norman Baker who went to the police. This is a live inquiry, by the way. It's a criminal inquiry, which the police are still carrying out. Um, so it's the first time someone's come to the throne with a live criminal investigation embroiling them. In my view, it's an open and shut case that the defence has been committed under the honours brackets, uh, Prevention of Abuses, closed brackets, Act 1925. So I raised that with the Metropolitan Police. The Metropolitan Police, after a while, said, yes, it's sufficient here to investigate this as a criminal a potential criminal activity. Um, about a month before the Queen died, I wrote to them again and said, where is this inquiry? Is it still ongoing? And they said, yes, it's still ongoing, it's still alive. But I think they are starting to make concessions. And one of the things they get criticised for is the number of residences that they have, the Crown residences. And most of these go back several hundred years. Like Charles has talked about possibly making Balmoral a museum now and charging people to come and have a look at things, and therefore that money will then support Balmoral. 
rather than the money coming from the taxpayer, which is a good idea. And, you know, people would pay to go and see where the Queen had so many happy times in her life, also where she spent her last weeks of her life. And, you know, showing that he's prepared to do things like that is a step forward, I think. And the way you cover the royals, Donna, do you think yeah. it'll be different in the future? Do your readers expect any kind of change, as in an even more serious, critical discussion about the place of the monarchy in New Zealand today? I don't think so. I don't think it will change. We have covered the topic from time to time, but to be honest, readers of the Women's Weekly want to know more about the people rather than the institution. They see them as, you know, these people who through either an accident of birth or a very smart marriage have ended up with a very privileged life. But it is something we do look at. We've written about the fact, you know, what's going to happen with Charles as king. He's talked about a slimmed down monarchy. How is this going to affect the rest of the family? who's going to be on the outer, uh, who's going to be left doing all the work. Uh, Also, they are interested in Camilla, which is quite interesting from my point of view because I remember when I first started writing about her, people hated her with an absolute passion. Well, well, that's interesting that you should say that, Donna, because we first knew about her as the third person in the marriage between Charles and Diana, didn't we? And then she was kind of branded evil, Camilla. And it's just amazing that that has lasted. It, It has with some people, but to be honest, she has gained so much popularity. I noticed that the last time they came here and often what I do when I'm waiting for them to turn up, we have to be there in advance. And I will often walk around the crowd and talk to people. And the people who turn up at those kinds of events are the monarchists and the royalists, and they are there to see them. So they're going to be fans. But every now and then you get someone who's like, oh, it's my lunch break and I was walking past and I thought I'd see what all the fuss is about. And I did notice the last time that people were a lot, warmer towards Camilla and it's quite interesting I actually um, have got to know a British photographer called Arthur Edwards who works for the Sun newspaper and is one of the top royal photographers so not a paparazzi photographer but he is part of the royal rota who cover the royals all the time and I actually emailed him yesterday and said because he knows Camilla and Charles very well. And I said, you know, how would you describe Camilla? What do you think is people should know about her? And he said, she's a lovely lady who has never lost the common touch and she is going to make Charles a better king, which I found really interesting. I count on the loving help of my darling wife, Camilla. In recognition of her own loyal public service since our marriage 17 years ago, she becomes my queen consort. I have seen her described as, yeah, someone who's a common sense kind of person. She's funny. She, yeah. she actually cracks a good joke. She has got a good sense of humour. She's very down to earth, but she calms him down. Charles can have, he is known for his temper, which we did see a few examples of when he got a bit cross with the pen mm. that he used and the fact that the ink pots weren't moved. He can be quite impatient but Arthur has said that, you know, she calms him down, she helps him to smile and to relax, 
And the other thing is she doesn't steal the limelight from him, which is quite interesting because I remember all those years ago, the first time that I saw Prince Charles as he was then was with Diana at Government House in Auckland. And they split up and went either side of the crowd and then they did cross over. And when he came to near where I was, I heard a woman saying to him, oh, hello, do you think your wife's going to come over here? And he was like, oh, it's a shame, you know, we can't do both sides. And you could sort of tell that he was like, well, you've got me. Please don't be disappointed. And I think that was very hard for him to cope with at first. And Camilla, she doesn't do that. She lets the light, the limelight be on him. But by the same token, she's not a shrinking violet. If she needs to come forward and be treated with the respect that her position deserves, she'll do that. And I know um, Arthur has talked to me about cases where she was um, at an event and she was asked to sit to one side and she said, no, I'm sitting next to my husband. Mm. Well, it's going to be fascinating to see how how they are received in New Zealand. It will be. You know, he's 73. He's in good health at the moment. I don't know if he'll have the longevity that his parents had. I know. He, he looks might, exhausted to me. He does look exhausted. He looks absolutely grief-stricken. And he's in a, a tricky position. So he's finally got to do the job that he was born to do. But the only way he's got there is by the tragic loss of his mum. So it's a fine line. He's having to balance a lot of emotion at the moment. I know that her death brings great sadness to so many of you. And I share that sense of loss beyond measure with you all. I think there is a, a growing understanding that things can't go on. And there's also, I think, as I mentioned, journalists who have been itching to write stuff who will now start writing things that they haven't done before, I think. So we will see that. Now, the issue is whether or not when Charles gets fewer people in the balcony, everything has been cured and, and goes away again, or whether they dig deeper, as I have done, and say, hang on, that's not nearly good enough. That's just, that's just lay that's the, the veil. The thing is, so Norman, as we've seen from the last couple of weeks, people all over the world love the royals well what do they love they love watching the pomp yes. and ceremony is one thing that britain does well and that is these kind of yes, big events i look i don't mind the pomp and ceremony if it's pomp and ceremony and nothing else that'd be fine i've got no objection to people dressing up and driving down the mall in a, in a gold coach that's fine it's not that that worries me it's, it's all the other stuff behind it uh, which should have been abolished and changed and it hasn't been that's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom 4RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Bonnie Harrison and Sarah Robson. And thanks to Donna Fleming and Norman Baker. Mā te wā. 